0: As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews.
1: So my mom takes me to school, pulls me up the steps in the wheelchair principal said they can't go to the school. And they were like, why? Because I would be a fire hazard. So my mom and dad were perplexed. They didn't know other families who had disabled children. And the board of education sent a teacher to my house two different days a week, one day for an hour, one day for an hour and a half. My brother, when he started going to school, was going to school for six, six and a half hours. And I was getting a total of two and a half hours a week. Hello,
0: this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I had the honor to talk to Judy Human, a notable leader in the fight for the civil rights of disabled people. Judy lives fairly close to me in Washington, D.C., and she and our mutual friend, Lance Kramer, just took a masked and socially distanced walk the other day. Actually, she rolled and we walked. Before our interview, I had watched the excellent documentary film Crip Camp, which features historical footage of Judy and, among other things, shows the protests which forced the signing of unaltered Section 504 regulations in the 70s. I'd also read Judy's memoir, called Being Human, and recommend it highly. Judy has been part of starting and running multiple organizations, as well as working for disabled rights in the federal and D.C. governments. She's also recently had the chance to talk to Trevor Noah and to be interviewed on Drunk History. You'll want to hear Judy's thoughts on social movements and our current politics. So with that as background, a quick word with our sponsor, then my interview with Judy Human. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization Using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With
1: Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
0: Could you introduce yourself and give me a quick biography?
1: My name is Judy Human. I'm seventy two years old and I mention that because I had polio in nineteen forty-nine. So basically have lived my entire life having a disability. I do not walk, I use a motorized wheelchair, and I use what we call personal assistance. People who help me with basic day to day activities like getting dressed and bathing and going to the bathroom and cooking. And I live in the Cleveland Park area, and which is a lovely neighborhood because it has so many different stores and restaurants that I can go out and about easily in my motorized wheelchair by myself and do a lot of the shopping and go to restaurants. And we're near two metros and two major bus stops. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, and I've written a book called Being Human, which I encourage people to read. It'll give you much more information about myself. And I've also recently been a part of a film called Crip Camp, uh, which is a story about a camp for disabled youth and our emergence as a disabled youth and the disability rights movement that has evolved since that period of time with many disabled people who were participants in the camp playing a very active role in the disability rights movement here in the United States. I've been very fortunate in my life that when I was growing up, people thought that they would have one job and have that job for the rest of their life. And I've been fortunate to be able to have many different types of jobs, um, most of which I never thought would happen. I was a teacher for three years in New York City after suing the Board of Education because I was denied my license because I couldn't walk. I then went to graduate school moving from Brooklyn to Berkeley and got involved with an organization called the Berkeley Center for Independent Living, which uh, has spawned uh, hundreds of centers for independent living around the world. And these are community-based organizations run by disabled people with a focus on empowerment of disabled people and impacting uh, legislation, policies, and enforcement. I was a founder of an organization called the World Institute on Disability, which is located in Oakland, Berkeley, California, which was the first international public policy institute led by disabled individuals with the focus on a number of issues including personal assistance, independent living aging and disability and then i had the privilege of working in the clinton administration as an assistant secretary for the office of special education and rehabilitative services which was a fantastic job because it enabled me to work across the united states in areas of education for disabled children, employment for adults, disabled adults, and to be significantly involved with research impacting disabled people from the perspective of advancing inclusion. I worked at the World Bank as their first advisor on disability rights. And then I was the director of the Department of Disability Services for the District of Columbia and then worked for the in the Obama administration at the Department of State as the first special advisor for international disability rights. And now I've been consulting and involved with you know the writing of my book with my colleague Kristen Joyner and the film Crip Camp with Jimmy Lebrecht, Nicole Noonham, Sarah Boulder, which I hope you read both the book and the film. Uh, Along the way, I've been very involved in major legislation in the United States, including Section 504, which was the first federal piece of legislation to prohibit discrimination against someone with a disability in programs receiving money from the federal government. And then I was also very involved in the development and passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, In 1990, the ADA is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year in July, July 26, 2020.
0: It's really an amazing career and would have been very hard to predict from the beginnings, I think. The first time I became acquainted with you was by watching Crip Camp, which my friend Lance had suggested to me. Do you know how that movie came to be? I know that Obama's had to do with it. Who tackled it and, and why and how, how did that all come about?
1: So the vision of Crip Camp originally came from one of the directors, Jimmy Lebrecht, who gets known as Jim Lebrecht or James Lebrecht. And he's a moderator throughout the film. He's the cute 15-year-old guy coming down the ramp who had spina bifida and had been in regular education schools never really around other disabled people. And when he came to camp, when he was 15, it really was an important part of his life because it was the first time that he could feel reasonably comfortable as a disabled person. And as you saw in the film, he becomes a sound engineer and is the sound engineer for Berkeley Repertory Theater, which is a prestigious rep theater, not only in Berkeley, but in the United States, and then set up his own sound company. And after many years of uh, working, not doing much of anything in disability, he decided that he really wanted to look at getting involved in a film, which would be able to highlight the story of the disability rights movement. And so this was his dream and vision. And he had been working with a woman named Nicole who who is the other director of the film. He had done the sound work on at least three of her films and she's an award-winning documentarian. And Jimmy's won awards in the work that he's done uh, in sound engineering. And they joined together to make this film. When they decided to move forward with this, they called me pretty early on in the process to begin to think about how to put this film together. And they were pretty far ahead when the Obamas and Netflix got engaged.
0: How was there so much footage around from that camp? Who was taking all that?
1: So there was a small company, I think, called the People's Production Company. Sorry, I that may be exactly correct, but it's mentioned in the film. Again, you know, this was 1971. And uh, they had a company which was uh, using videos. And they came to the camp one day and said that they would be willing to let the campers use video cameras to shoot various things. And so they actually have five and a half hours of footage of the Grip Camp people. They found one of the guys from the people's production company who had moved from New York state to San Francisco. And that's how they reconnected. And that's how they got the footage.
0: Why was the camp important for you?
1: The camp was important to me as was the previous camp that I had gone to. And as was the elementary school that I finally got to go to when I was nine years old in the fourth grade. I very much oppose segregation of anybody. In this case, Disabled individuals, like the elementary school that I went to was a regular school, but they had classes for disabled children, and we weren't even allowed to eat lunch with the non-disabled children, even though the lunchroom was on the same floor as our classes. I didn't go to camp with my brothers because the camp that my brothers went to didn't accept disabled campers. So I went to Camp Oakhurst uh, when I was like nine to 12, and then went to Camp June Ed. What was valuable for me about my elementary school classes, even though the teaching was not very significant, was it allowed me to begin to make friends with other disabled people. And over the years at school and at Camp Oakhurst and Camp June Ed, as I and others were getting older, we were able to really begin to think more about our futures and our concerns about our futures and begin to also more seriously look at why were we being treated so very differently than other non-disabled people our ages. And we were being influenced by the civil rights movement um, in the 50s and the 60s and forward, really um, looking at what discrimination was, using the word discrimination, and recognizing the fact that we were experiencing as disabled people discrimination on a daily basis, a daily and in many cases, an hourly basis. And that what was happening to us, lack of accessible transportation, discrimination, employment, unequal opportunities in education, housing discrimination, on and on, for other groups was considered discrimination. For us, it was really not a name. The word discrimination really started moving forward in the area of disability in the latter part of the 60s, and then you know has increased steadily in the 70s, moving up to today. We were not included in the Civil Rights Act of 64, and all of these issues in an age-appropriate way were beginning to surface. We were beginning to be able to think about not only what we weren't able to do because we weren't taken into consideration in planning of our cities and our towns and our transit systems etc but we also were very much recognizing that like the civil rights movement for black people and women etc we were going to have to be our own spokespersons we were going to have to be able to tell our stories, create a vision of what we wanted, not only for ourselves, but what we believed needed to happen in order to make significant changes in society overall. So we were really beginning to plot out what were some of our visions for changes that needed to happen. And we were definitely learning from what the civil rights movement was doing, the anti-war movement was doing, how to bring your message to the public. We have to feel proud of who we are, not ashamed of having a disability in order to be able to clearly articulate our vision and fight for our rights. And so really that was emerging when I was nine years old and Camp Jeanette, because I started there when I was 12 or 13 and the film has me there at 21. So I was 22. I was out of school. I had sued the board of Ed and I was a teacher that year.
0: It seems like it's with the education system that you first had to fight. Can you describe a little bit of that, how that shaped up?
1: Yeah, you know, my parents, We're Jewish, and my parents came from Germany. My mom was 12 when she was sent out of Germany in 1935, and my dad was uh, 14, and he was sent out in 1934. Um, They lost their parents and other relatives in the concentration camps. They met in Philadelphia in 1945 after the war, and then, They got married in 1946 and I was born in 1947. They did not anticipate having a child who would have a disability. My mother was pregnant with my brother. I had polio in August and she was at my brother Joey in September. And uh, they had a lot of help from friends and I think they had uh, a woman who came into the house to help my mom they were just expecting that at five years old I would go to school. So my mother took me to school in our neighborhood, pulled me up the stairs of the school, because at that time, you know, basically there was no consideration being given to accessibility. What was emerging also at that time in the 1950s was that there was a larger group of disabled veterans that had Uh, come back to the United States, uh, many of whom were wheelchair users. And prior to penicillin being invented, many of those people would have died, but they didn't. And so they came back to a country as quote-unquote war heroes who were then being shut out of much of life because the streets weren't accessible. You know, housing public buildings, on and on, weren't accessible, and they were being discriminated against in seeking jobs. And so the movement itself was influenced by disabled veterans around the United States. There were little pockets of disabled students programs being developed, Um, disabled students really coming forward to the university saying, you know, we're here at the schools. You have to be providing us with accessibility and various kinds of supports before there were any laws that made that a requirement. Daniel, what was the question?
0: So, just sort of the interaction between you becoming a fighter and the educational process.
1: So, um, my mom takes me to school, pulls me up the steps in the wheelchair, principal says, I can't go to the school. And they were like, why? Because I would be a fire hazard. So at that point, I think A, my mom and dad were like perplexed. They didn't know other families who had disabled children. And so they were trying to figure out what to do. And the Board of Education sent a teacher to my house two different days a week, one day for an hour, one day for an hour and a half. That was the full.
0: Not a full replacement for a school week.
1: My, yeah, my brother, when he started going to school, was going to school for six, six and a half hours. And I was getting a total of two and a half hours a week. So, you know, that was also something that eventually, as I got older, was completely recognizing well, if you believe that two and a half hours a week is sufficient clear that you either think I'm a genius as are all other disabled kids who are stuck in home instruction or you really don't think we have a future and so you don't want to invest in educating us.
0: I bet you were reading a lot on the side.
1: I was reading a lot. I was definitely learning to read a lot but I think education is so pivotal not just for the academic learning which of course is Very important, but also for socialization, you know, being with your peers, learning how to learn, learning how to listen, learning how to be respectful of others. You know, all of those things are in part what you get by going to school. And I didn't have any of that. And at that time, really, even until I was a teacher in the 70s, it wasn't until 19... 75, with the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act, which today is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and Section 504, which came out in 1973, there was no requirement that disabled children receive the same level of education as non-disabled children.
0: When the characters in your memoir, in your life, tell you you can't do things like you can't become a teacher or you can't go to school. Your reaction is not acceptance, even though that seemed to be the total norm at the time for people to be treated that way.
1: I really did learn from my mother in particular. My father was always supportive of my mother, but he worked all day, six days a week. So what happened when I finally did get into Health Conservation 21, when I was in the middle of the fourth grade, my mother learned that for those of us who used wheelchairs in New York City, there were no high schools that were accessible. And so what was supposed to happen is we would go on home instruction. And my mother and other moms got together and began having meetings with the Board of Ed demanding that they do something about it. And so what did happen is the Board of Ed did make some schools accessible. Also, at that time, I went to a high school called PS219, and it was a new high school. It was built in 1960, I think. And some of the work of the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association and others had established standards for construction So that school, because it was new, was accessible. I grew up in East Flatbush. Sheepshead Bay was, uh, without having to pick people up on a bus, about 30 minutes from my house. But nonetheless, what resulted from the parents' activities was that those of us who used wheelchairs could go to high school. And in my program at uh, PS219, I was the first student in the special ed classes to ever go to high school. Uh, I went to high school in 1961. So you can see at that period of time, the second class citizenship that disabled children were being put through and how the fact that the civil rights movement didn't see this as something that should be embraced really spoke to the fact that the disability community was basically unorganized. And so we didn't even get to participate with other movements to uh, argue that as legislation like the Civil Rights Act was moving forward, that disability be a part of it.
0: The movie has a lot of footage also from the Section 504 sit-in and series of protests. Can you describe what what that battle was about?
1: So as I mentioned, there was this law called Section 504, which is a part of a piece of legislation called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 as amended. It's a part of Title V. And it says that if you're a recipient of federal financial assistance, then you may not discriminate against someone based on their disability. And it was like 42 words. And there was no explanation of who was a disabled person, what was discrimination, what would the remedies be. So between 1973 and 1977, regulations explaining and creating definitions for issues I just raised were being discussed. a proposed set of regulations were published in the Federal Register. People from all over the country, not just disabled people but in you know higher ed institutions and hospitals and public school systems and transit systems, etc, were writing and commenting on the proposed regs, and finally, a modified version of the proposed regulations was developed. A lot of the work was done under the Nixon administration, and then when Nixon resigned and Ford became president under his administration, and he refused, Ford refused, to sign the regulations, saying that it was going to be too onerous. And when Jimmy Carter was running for president against Ford, he said to the disability community that they would um, sign the regulations. So when he came into office in January of 1977, uh, we were expecting that they would pretty quickly sign the regulations. In 1975, an organization had been formed called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. It was the first cross-disability coalition of disabled individuals led by disabled people. And all the voting members of the organization had to be organizations run by disabled people. One of the prime purposes of the coalition was to help usher forward the regulations for Section 504 and to work on getting them signed and then uh, work on implementation and enforcement. When Secretary Joe Califano was named as the Secretary of Health Education and Welfare at that time, he did want to do a review of the proposed draft. Now, on the face of it, one would say, you have a new administration coming in, of course you want them to review it. There may be differences, maybe they want to make it stronger. But in fact, what happened was the secretary had worked in the healthcare industry and others previously, and he was getting comments from people who he had worked with over the years saying that the proposed regulations were too strong. And so we learned from people within health education and welfare as well as uh, staffers working on the Hill with support of uh, congressional representatives that they were looking at serious changes to the regulations that would have weakened them. So the board of the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, and it was my motion actually that established a date which said in the event that the regulations are not signed by April, whatever the date was, there would be demonstrations around the United States in at least all the federal regions. And there are nine federal regions. So that's really how that came about. We decided that enough was enough, that we were not going to allow this to dangle. And as a result of that, around the United States, members of ACCD started planning for demonstrations in April and the Bay area, the Berkeley Center for Independent Living, the San Francisco Center for Independent Living, uh, many other organizations, unions, religious groups, etc. We had been working together over the years on a number of issues, including things like accessible transportation and then We also were supportive of efforts that other groups were involved with in California at that time. There was the Farm Workers Union that was striking for better benefits and there was a boycott against lettuce and various things. So we were able to begin to work across disability run organizations in California but also to be able to work with organizations that were other civil rights groups, pro union community health care clinics and others to uh, gain their support to help us. And so the demonstrations that occurred when about 150 people occupied the San Francisco health education and welfare building were the results of hard organizing and working across uh, many different spectrums to really begin to highlight why we needed to have these regulations signed.
0: It felt to me like that was a pivotal moment in the disability rights movement and in your development as an activist, is that true?
1: Absolutely. It wasn't the first time that we'd had demonstrations because in New York, those of you who watched the film, there were demonstrations that we held in 1972. I was involved with forming a group in New York called Disabled in Action. And Disabled in Action, after Nixon vetoed the Rehabilitation Act for the first time, we at another organization called Pride, And another group that had just been formed um, at Willowbrook State School for the Mentally Retarded. That was its name. We don't use the word mentally retarded anymore. Uh, We had all banded together to have a protest uh, that ultimately wound up in Manhattan on Madison Avenue by Nixon headquarters, shutting the city down. And we shut the city down with 50 people sitting across the Street on Madison Avenue. Those demonstrations, we did one set on Thursday, and we did another walking up against Times Square on the day before the election in November of 1972. We would do demonstrations after we felt like we had tried to have meetings and negotiate and resolve things, and when that didn't happen, demonstrations likely followed but what was unique about the 504 demonstrations in 1977 A was that there were demonstrations around the united states that was the first time that there was anything organized and accd as the mothership really um with eunice fiorito who was the chairperson of the board and frank bow who was the executive director and they were in Washington. And so they were going to meetings with various people trying to find out what was going on. And they were working with the various groups around the country and planning the demonstrations. Ultimately, the demonstrations that were held ended within two to three days for a variety of reasons. But the Bay Area, because as I've been saying, was more organized. We were really able to sustain the demonstrations. And I would say one of the reasons we were able to sustain them outside of the obvious that we were able to get support from the community. from groups like the Black Panthers who made sure we had food every day, three times a day. Safeway that also brought in food, um, a number of community organizations that were providing a a range of different types of support, plus ongoing work that was going on by the 150 people in the building. So we were monitoring communication, putting out press releases, uh, continuing to organize rallies that went on outside the building, I think, like almost every day over the 28-day period that people were in the building. There's another film that's um, uh, it's called The Power of 504. It's about 18 minutes and you can get it on YouTube. And that's footage that's just of the demonstrations. And it's moderated by a woman named Kitty Cohn, who was one of the main leaders of the uh, 504 demonstrations also. And I think one thing you see very much from people in the building was a real sense of pride and power. So I would say that really one of the very important components of what came out of the demonstration, in addition to the fact that our purpose of getting the regulations signed without being altered, getting them signed in the form that they had been in after, the comment period and the final set of regulations were produced but not yet published or signed was we were victorious. We had been working on the regulations for years and there were compromises that were being made to those proposed regulations. And so really it was the bottom line for us on what we felt would
0: be acceptable. I'm curious what you think about the relationship between the leadership of social movements like this and sort of how successful they are. Because you know, everybody I've talked to who's been close to them wants to say, you know, it wasn't me necessarily. It was such a, a group thing. It's a movement, but also leaders are important and your role was important. How do you understand that? in your movement and others.
1: I think that's correct. It's people play different roles. People are in different places in their life and they feel comfortable doing different things. If you look at uh, these demonstrations, you'll see that there were definitely a core group of us who were leaders who played, you know, more prominent roles than others in organizing and, planning, and strategizing. But at the end of the day, the work that we were doing really had to be something that the group as a whole agreed on, had input into, and could support. Because if we were doing something that uh, was contrary to what people believed in, it would have left. Uh, they wouldn't have come every day outside the building to, you know, march and, you know, have protests. It seems like you were very cognizant of that and
0: really working to listen late into the night to everybody and let people have their say and come to some consensus.
1: I mean, we were making it up as we went along. The whole process was, you know, obviously everything was, well will organize for the first day. So the first day was, we're gonna have a big rally outside the building. Uh, we had set up a committee made up of representatives from the different organizations, CIL Berkeley, San Francisco, and they were saying others to meet with the leadership representatives in health education and welfare in San Francisco. We had asked for a meeting to come in after the rally to talk about the Section 504 regulations and to learn more in depth about what was going on. So we had organized all that. And a few of us had thought about, maybe we should be thinking about staying in the building. Because if we're not gonna get what we want and we leave, then it's gonna be very difficult. But We didn't wanna talk about that in advance because we didn't want the people in the government office to learn that we were thinking about that. So it was really a small handful of us, like a couple people. Kitty Cone and I came, I came with a pair of extra underpants and toothbrush and toothpaste and uh, a few other people too, but most people really just came with no expectation of staying. So I think it was incumbent upon us to really involve as many people as possible in the decisions because every individual person who stayed in the building was making a personal decision. And if they didn't feel a part of what was happening, why would they stay? And it needed to be something more than just their body, which is why we had these various committees that were set up so there would be functional activities that people were involved with so they could feel that they were also playing a role in different ways in allowing this to move forward. And then as you see in the film, about 22 of us go from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., where we meet up with other people, the leadership from ACCD and others in the East Coast to really put more pressure on the Carter administration. And we would not have been able to maintain people in the building if they didn't really see themselves, each individual plus collectively that they really were going to make a difference, that if they left the building, we thought it would be you know, a bargaining chip that would, would disappear. People were very engaged. I think for a number of the disabled people who, had, who were relatively newly disabled, being able to be in an environment like this, was very empowering for them. And whether or not they'd had a disability for a long time or not, many of them, like Corbett O'Toole in the film, it was really the first time that she had been linking up with other disabled people to learn that there were other people like her who also had similar experiences and similar visions to what they wanted life to move forward. And they wanted it to move
0: forward. The course of that sort of revolution, starting well before the Section 504 and going through the passage of Americans with Disability Act, I mean, it requires an awful lot of staying power and patience and continued pushing to make this kind of change. What advice do you have to other people engaged in different but important struggles about how to be successful, and how to stay with it?
1: I think it's important to work as much as possible collectively to create a vision of what it is we want, to recognize that we need to ensure that people can speak up and out. Personal stories, I think, are very important one thing I didn't include in my early you know, introduction is since like 2017, I've been doing more work on the issue of inclusion or lack thereof of disabled people in media. And I was a fellow at the Ford Foundation for a year and wrote a paper called Roadmap to Inclusion, changing uh, the face of disability in media. One of the purposes of that paper was to be able to show that uh, disabled individuals are not appropriately represented in any aspect of media. And you know, when you look at the role of media in you know, behind it in front of the camera, journalism, social media, et cetera, the failure to have appropriate representation, in this case of disabled people who are black or brown or indigenous or Muslims or Christians or Jews, this absence also continues to allow the general society not to understand who we are, what our issues are, the diversity within our communities, we're LGBTQ, we're, you know, we're everything. That absence I think also is debilitating for those of us with disabilities. We in not seeing ourselves represented Even though, you know, there is more representation happening, it's still so insignificant. If you compare it to representation of any other minority groups in the United States or majority groups as in women, disabled people are really on the bottom of the barrel. So, you know, my message to people is we have a lot of things we have to do. First thing I think that's important is individual people can tell our stories. We can talk about discrimination, how it has impacted us, how having something like diabetes or depression or anxiety or PTSD is something that if we're not able to speak about it with an employer, for example, for fear of, not getting a job or not advancing in a job, when we can't speak about accommodations, we may need um, a sign language interpreter, media um, documents appropriate for blind people, on and on. it doesn't allow us to bring our full self into the center of our communities. And so we need to be nurturing our movement at the same time that we also have to be Really strategically working on issues. So, right now, with COVID 19 and the international pandemic, which has taken the world by surprise and thrown our lives up in the air, nonetheless, as disabled people, we really need to be as we are, you know, focusing on what is happening to those of us who have disabilities, issues of rationing of health care, uh, looking at what's going on in nursing homes and congregate living programs where you see a disproportionate number of people who are dying for many reasons. We need to be looking at the fiscal implications for what is going to be happening over the next years and how to ensure that financial issues around disability are in fact front and center ability to be able to get funding for people to hire people to work in their homes to help ensure that we can get about the community to not lose the small gains that we've made in employment. Disabled people, you know, still only about 28% of those interested in working actually have jobs. And you know what one sees is last hired, first fired. So big concern about that. And be strong, be strong, resilient. Don't take no for an answer. I believe it's very important to work together. Uh, individual voices telling your stories is great, but it's also very important to come together with organizations that have a similar message because we're stronger when we are together. So I I believe we've made great gains and it's because these things have been happening and we can't lose the progress that we've been making.
0: How is the world of disability rights under President Trump in his campaign Uh, I remember him mocking a disabled reporter. I know that they've been interested in reducing regulations in areas that must be affecting people like you. What do you see out of this particular administration?
1: I see what you and others see, a disaster. It's much more than lack of leadership. It's his degrading view of people. It's his inability to be strategic. It's his ability to insult, to malign people. My memory of this man will be when he spoke during the campaign, ridiculing this New York Times reporter. The regulations that they're weakening are not just a problem for those of us with disabilities. But in many cases, some of the regulations they are weakening will cause greater numbers of disabled individuals, which I'm proud of myself having a disability. But when people, when their quality of health is going down because they're losing their health insurance and they may have hypertension or diabetes or heart condition or cancer or whatever and don't have enough money don't have insurance those are things which are in my mind unconscionable i have no respect for him i'm really at a point where i have no difficulty publicly saying that it's one thing to disagree with people on how you know what your views are about what a law should or shouldn't do and when i worked in the clinton administration we went from having a democratic president and democratic house and senate control to losing control of the house and senate, you know, two years into the administration. But I respected many of the people that I worked with. We could work in a bipartisan way. We were basically people who respected life and valued people and we were able to respectfully, typically come together. There could be some very strong arguments. We could lose some things. They could lose some things. But at the end of the day, by and large, I didn't feel that they were evil. And I do believe that he's evil. And I do believe that our standing in the world, that he is really bringing our standing down. And for that, I think, It will take years to repair it. And I think, you know, one of the other issues is too many people in the United States have not traveled out of the United States or when they have, they really have not gotten down to talking to people about their quality of life. And the U.S. needs to be allies with democratic countries. And we also need to be defenders of the rights of democracy We need to be helping people in other countries learn about how democracies run, that they're not authoritarian. I can't say enough about how I hope he is a one-term person in particular because of the appointments they've been making to the courts, including the Supreme Court. I will do everything I can to help make sure he's a one-term president.
0: For people who are interested in that political fight from the lens of disability, what organizations would be good to support or who's doing good work in that area?
1: Well, you know, most of the organizations are nonprofits, so they can't take positions. But there is something called RevUp, R-E-V-U-P, which is working on voter registration, not on selecting candidates, but getting people registered to vote, helping people learn about the importance of voting, working to ensure that all people you know, who meet the definition of being able to vote are able to do so without fear of discrimination based on race or disability. So Rev Up is something that I think is very important. Groups like the League of Women Voters The Democratic National Committee, there's a committee on disability and getting involved with them, looking at the state Democratic committees. And I think looking at what are the names of the organizations in your community that are run by disabled people, learning about whether or not they're doing Meet the Candidate Nights, questions to people that are running for office. And I guess. One of the thing that I think is very important, obviously, the presidential election is very important, but we can't lose sight of city councils, school boards, judges, county government, state government, and federal government. I think we have to really become a more educated group of people so that we can have a stronger impact across the board. very frequently, people who start out at lower levels of elected positions are able to move up if they're doing a good job, potentially to other elected offices or to uh, working in various governments, helping to create and advance legislation and policies and implementation, we need to look at voting as not only a right but as something that we have a responsibility to do. And we have to be educated to do that.
0: Judy, in your memoir, you suggest that we should design the world around our humanity. What did you mean by that?
1: We want to be creating a world where we do really value everyone's life. And as such, we really need to ensure things like a healthy environment, that people are fed, that people can be educated that people can get jobs, that people can be respected, that they're not discriminated against for whatever reason, their religion, their race, their socioeconomic status, their sexual orientation. We need to see ourselves living in a world where we are respectful of each other and that we believe that what is good for me is good for you. Now, I'm not saying believing what's good for me should be identical to what you believe is good for you. We may have different ways that we wish to live our life and I can be very respectful of that. I don't have any scheme of what your life should look like. My thought is respect is what we should be looking at. Respect and ensuring that we value everyone's life, that we can come to the table together, that we can communicate on a regular basis, and that we can ensure that we're creating a world for our children and ourselves which allows us to do valuable things that are humane and respect human rights.
0: Well, you've certainly done valuable things. Is there a question that I failed to ask that you wish I had?
1: I'm married. I have a lovely husband. His name is Jorge Pineda. I met him in Eugene, Oregon in 1992. We've been married almost 28 years. And he's bought a very important addition into my life. He's from Mexico. He has a great family. We don't have any children ourselves, but we have like 13 nieces and nephews. You know, I've really learned on a very deep level how. Trump and the administration disparagingly speaking about Mexicans and others, how it has such a detrimental effect on people and our society as a whole. And uh, when I hear, you know, the way our nieces and nephews talk about things going on in the United States, it allows you to really have a clearer understanding of the impact of things that leaders in the United States can do to advance or to repress people's thinking about us and how they can look at us with disrespect and disdain because they're being treated with disrespect and disdain. And, you know, again, the quote unquote leadership of this country who says such terrible things about people and feels that incarcerating children and Separating from their families, it's really disgusting and intolerable.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought up your husband because one of the points that you made at several points in, in your memoir is about the pain of feeling invisible as someone potentially to date because you were in a wheelchair. And it seems like a lot of people with different kinds of disabilities sometimes face that. And it's, it's a, such an important part of life. We want everybody to, to have all of
1: that. You know, one of the values of our disability rights movement is the fact that we're learning more and more the importance of being able to be together and to understand each other's needs and barriers and acts of discrimination and impact. And we need to be able to speak up and speak out for others, not just ourselves or those that are like us. I think that's one of the real important aspects of Section 504 and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act is that we've been learning that the ultimate problem we're trying to address is discrimination, that the remedies and changes may be different. But ultimately, what we all want, regardless of the reasons for discrimination, is that we're able to create communities where people do learn to be respectful of all people and do recognize that things like you know, childcare, women and men being able to get paid maternity leave. When you do think about some of the changes that have happened in this country and in other countries, I guess one of the things that I think is so unfortunate is we in the US know so little about what goes on in other countries. And we come in feeling like we do the best in everything. And from a disability perspective, I have felt you know, most of my life that we have done some of the best work in advancing the rights of disabled people. Our laws are stronger. They've been more effectively implemented, although under this administration, that's also falling to the wayside. But I felt very proud of that. But we don't know about what is national health insurance in other countries you know what is it like to i have a friend who um parents uh live in england her father recently passed away but he was sick for about a year and was under national health insurance in england he was in and out of the hospital needed various kinds of supports at home everything was provided they paid I don't wanna say they paid nothing because they paid for what they got through their taxes, but they didn't have to worry about getting bills. People here talk about losing health insurance and how it's gonna mean they can't get healthcare and how it can bankrupt them. And they don't know how unusual we are comparing ourselves to other democratic countries. And we've gotta understand that, that we are an anomaly and not a good anomaly, that you know we cause suffering and pain. If the members of the Congress, the House and the Senate, and the people in the White House did not have health insurance and they didn't have high incomes, they'd be uninsured. I remember a friend of mine who was the head of a foundation in California, who financially was not rich, but, you know, was comfortable. And he couldn't get health insurance because he had a disability, a hidden disability. And he couldn't get health insurance at that time because he had a pre-existing condition. That doesn't happen in democratic countries. And, And yet we think it's just normal. Ultimately, I hope that one of the outcomes of this pandemic is people will notice that there are an additional 20 million people that are losing their health insurance and are losing their jobs and where their jobs will be coming back slowly. What are they going to be doing over time? What if employers stop offering health insurance? These are unacceptable and they should be unacceptable for the country. Because it makes us a sicker country, we wind up spending way more money on health care because people get sicker and they can't get services. It impacts their ability to work, their family. We really, as citizens and residents and people, dreamers and others, really need to be much more engaged, much more critical, much more demanding of what we get from our government.
0: It's really been an honor to talk to you today. Is there anything else you want to say?
1: No, just um, thank you very much. And I really hope that what we've discussed today helps your audience think about issues of disability in a different way. And I guess one other point is that um, I was on the Trevor Noah show. You can look it up on YouTube. One funny thing that came out of it was he used the word able-bodied and I don't use the word able bodied. I use the term non disabled because anyone who's broken anything or has acquired a more permanent disability understands what many of us face on a daily basis adversely impacts your life for a short or longer period of time. And, you know, my view is don't feel embarrassed, don't feel ashamed. Feel empowered, feel empowered that you have a right and responsibility to think about your future. When you look at the number of people right now that are dying in congregate living and nursing home situations, look at why that's happening. It's happening because we haven't had policies that have allowed people to live in the community, that people are forced into these segregated environments where they don't have appropriate number of people to help them, that people aren't getting paid appropriate wages, you know, prepare for your future and do it in conjunction with other disabled individuals in your communities. And recognize that we all have strengths and weaknesses and um, having a disability doesn't make you a stronger or a weaker person, it makes you another person in your community.
0: You've recently been on Trevor Noah. You have a Ted talk. You've got a memoir. You were on drunk history. You've got the crip camp movie. That's a lot going on. How are you feeling about your place in life at 72?
1: I feel like we have a lot more to do and I appreciate being recognized, but also very much believe that we need to recognize, you know, that, thousands of disabled people in the U.S. and around the world who are really making important contributions and that, you know, hopefully the visibility that I've been getting, which has been, you know, very um, surprising to me in many ways, is something that, you know, we use as an example to recognize the potential of everyone.
0: Well, I'm happy when people who change the world for the better get recognition, not just people with a beautiful home run swing or a great jump shot or something else. So it's been, as I said, a great honor, and I wish you the, the best in making more change. That was Judy Human. You can look her up on Wikipedia. It's H-E-U-M-A-N-N. I hope that next year we can move back to a national administration that would again hire people like judy this is nathaniel g perlman with a great battlefield podcast you can find us at resistance or by searching for great battlefield in places where podcasts are found